A warning that today's episode of Daring to Tell contains discussion of a suicide attempt. Listener discretion is advised. If you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can reach out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention at AFSP.org or text the word TALK to 741741. I want people to know it's not the end of the world if you ask the questions and you get the answers you don't want to hear. The end of the world is if you don't ask. Michelle Rado here. And today, early in February, as I record the open to today's episode, there's a nor'easter blowing outside. And for me, it's a great little cozy day when I get to come into my closet and try and connect with you. Um, But when storms are raging, it's not often a source of solace or comfort if we are not in a cozy place. And so with that today, I bring you what I hope is a story of connection and reaching out amidst feelings of isolation and storms blowing. We don't have to be alone when we come to those moments, when we don't see the other side of the storm. Today's very brave writer and speaker is Betsy Armstrong, and she and I spent a little time chatting before getting into her story. We discovered the commonalities we both had had of snow days when we were growing up in our different places. In Minnesota, we had to get over a foot of snow. You just got snow all the time, so it wasn't a huge... It's tough, tough standard in like Midwest, Northeast to like actually earn that snow day. But I don't know about you, but my snow days, I would be so excited. I jump up and like want to go outside and play or, you know, go make snow angels or something. Like you wouldn't sleep. Yeah. No, you'd call your friends and then you all went out and made snowmen or whatever. You know, I know. Exactly. So exciting. So, yeah, so I'm nervous. Oh, <laughs> uh, don't be nervous. I know, you know, I, um, Betsy and I met in Nadine's publicity powerhouse workshop and Betsy, you and I were not in the same accountability group. So I think that we sort of were like, I want to meet those other people. <laughs> so, yes. I don't exactly. know if you want to talk about your, the class or writing or how we met any of that stuff. Yeah, so I have been working with Nadine for several years. We really clicked. I'd been writing my memoir and something about the way she helped move me ahead, even in the class we took, made me think, I'm going to call her and see if she'll be my coach. So she became my writing coach. And Mm -hmm. thankfully through her, I am now in the process of looking for an agent for that memoir that I was stuck on it's finished yay and so then last year when she offered this publicity class I thought well I want to take that because eventually I'm going to need to build a platform and do all this wonderful things that we're doing now Michelle and so there were some times when um, I was working with Nadine when she made some mention because my memoir features a lot about my mother and I know that yours has 
some connection to that subject. And so she used something you wrote as an example to me, oh. not, not, a you know, just sort of like this worked for Michelle. Why don't you try this? And I, it just made me think, well, I really want to get to know this Michelle person. And, <laughs> and I think I wrote you and just kind of said, we have these things that are in common. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was really happy when the next section of the class came along and we all got to be together in a group. Right. And so yeah. I'm so thrilled and really honored for you to have asked me to do wow. this. It feels, it feels very um, real writerly. You know? It does, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I think the whole, everybody we met has, has helped me feel that way too. And I think all of us have talked about like imposter syndrome. So I think we yes. all go like, oh, I really want to meet what that person's doing. She's so impressive. And and you and I have talked a little bit about some of our background of which some of it, nothing or very little to do about with what you're reading today. But I'll say all that to say, because yeah, I'm writing and dealing about GI surgery issues. And I was writing about my first, was it my first? Yeah, my first colonoscopy. I've had so many. <laughs> and then- Join the club. <laughs> I know, you were like, I've had a lot too. And so I was so thrilled. <laughs> I know, what a strange thing to bond over. But yes, you know, when you have some sort of emergency and for me, my mom died of colon cancer, which can be a genetic kind of cancer. Yeah. So yes, I've always been very paranoid about that. And so- yeah. Oddly, you know, I shared the one piece I've written that no one else has ever read that. Right. <laughs> and I knew the one about my col- my first, not even a colonoscopy. It was before colonoscopy. I know, <laughs> which I was horrified at that. Maybe if we get a huge call out, please, we Maybe. must hear a story about colonoscopies and barium enemas. Well, yes. maybe, maybe that will be a special on demand only. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe during colon cancer awareness month. Or yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, I am so happy to have you here today. And this is a really intense and great piece. And I'm so thankful to you for sharing this today. And I'm also really grateful to your daughter, Svetlana, who we will hear about. I'll ask how she's doing, but why don't we like talk about that at the end, I think. Would yeah, make that's sense. a good idea. Why don't you say anything that you want to say before you read it? Yeah, I think it's enough to say it's about my daughter, Svetlana, and um, her journey and my journey, I guess, through um, a really rough time in our lives. Heart tattoos. When people ask me about the tattoo on the inside of my left wrist, I used to say that it was to celebrate my first paycheck as a professional writer. The design combines two symbols, one for love and one for grammar in the form of a small pink heart with a semicolon interrupting one side of the curve. That story changed less than a year after I got my ink, when I learned these symbols are also used together to promote suicide awareness. In writing, a semicolon is used as a pause between two sentences. In mental health, that pause is critical if someone is suicidal. Stop, it tells them, don't. When your child lives with depression, you never know what each day will bring. 
The morning of Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, when I woke Svetlana up, her face appeared, grinning and hopeful from under the messy layers of comforters and pillows. And she asked, Nutella crepes, mom? On some days, my teenage daughter barely responded to my voice. That day, she smiled and asked for crepes. My heart opened wide as I beamed back at her. Of course. After breakfast, she moved to the dining room, which had become her COVID-19 distance learning classroom. And I hummed to myself as I went upstairs to my office to write. Our house remained calm for most of the day. The now typical rhythm of two teenagers, two adults, and two large dogs, plus one cat living and all working together during our COVID-19 shutdown. Family sounds. I headed downstairs later, ready to prepare another of Svetlana's favorites for a Cinco de Mayo Taco Tuesday dinner. Svetlana was curled in her usual spot on the corner of the sofa, but my husband was settled in uneasily next to her, his eyebrows bunched together, and his shoulders drooped. His posture personified defeat. I'm about to get dinner going. What's going on? I asked casually. Doug looked up, troubled and terrified. Svetlana just told me she took a bunch of her medication. I stared at Svetlana and noticed her pupils were pinpricks, black ink dots within her dull blue eyes. I was sad, she whispered. I asked, what did you take? My pills. Which ones? How many? All of them. A lot. She burrowed her head into her father's chest. Her medications, prescribed for her teenage trifecta of depression, anxiety, and ADHD, sat on the kitchen counter. As I ran to grab the bottles, now a fixture in our kitchen as ordinary as a dirty plate next to the sink, I remembered I just refilled them all. I took the six translucent orange containers and presented them to Svetlana one by one. Did you take these? I showed her the two red and white capsules remaining in the first bottle. My hand trembled with nerves. She nodded. How many? I demanded. About five, she replied. Then I poured a few tiny blue tablets into my hand and asked again. Seven, she mumbled. Shaking four lonely pellets from the next medication, I asked the question for the third time. How many? She looked at her father, then at her hands. 10, maybe more? We moved through all the bottles. Each time her estimate was off. My stomach churned as it became clear she ingested at least 30 pills. The next move was obvious, but during a pandemic, I wondered what was the risk in showing up at a hospital? Doug and I exchanged a glance over Svetlana's head and the decision was made. Nothing threatened her more than the pills she swallowed. Unfortunately, we were no strangers to this ER. Six months earlier, Svetlana had purposely drank an entire fifth of vodka. Her blood alcohol measured 0.32 when we arrived. While I waited with her, I searched online and learned that 0.40 would kill a 160 pound man. At just 120 pounds, Svetlana had meant business. I am not unfamiliar with suicide. I have experienced depression myself. I've contemplated ending my life, but never went further than thinking about it because the thoughts alone were enough to scare me into therapy. I do remember what it was like to muster the courage to call someone for help when my desperate thoughts turned destructive, as well as the resulting relief, transformation really for me, 
that occurred when the storm of my depression retreated after talking to a trained professional. The sun that came out after the black clouds in my head abated was so bright, the new me so much shinier than the old me that I chose change with a capital C. I switched careers to become the helper instead of the helpy. Less than three years after my worst dark night of the soul, I emerged from graduate school with a master's degree that earned me the designation of licensed professional counselor. Although I entered the field with the intention of working in individual and group counseling, I ended up in suicide prevention, working as an operator on a crisis line. For reasons still unclear to me even now, my supervisor believed I was gifted enough in this area to be promoted. Within 90 days, my title became manager of suicidal cases. Being a counselor, especially one who specialized unintentionally in trying to talk people off actual ledges, disoriented and devastated me. The adrenaline-filled conversations drained me and the relentless ringing of the phone never gave me enough time for recovery to settle myself in between calls. Before too long, I spent my breaks and then my lunch hour hiding in the bathroom in tears on a different floor of the building so my coworkers couldn't see. Less than a year into the job, I turned to my husband as soon as the alarm awoke me one morning. I declared the perpetual emergency was over. I quit. My time in the suicide trenches taught me several things, some of which I've never forgotten and some that receded until my daughter's attempts brought it all rushing back. When we arrived at the ER on May 5th, we were greeted by a gloved and masked receptionist who seemed more interested in my insurance card, copay, and paperwork than the obviously listless child leaning against me. I wanted to scream at them to hurry when finally a masked, gloved, and shielded nurse ushered us to a room where a masked, gloved, shielded, and paper-suited doctor was waiting. They moved robotically, hooking her up to tubes and machines and drawing her blood. I tried to read their expressions hidden behind their protective gear, wary of their judgment. Two suicide attempts in six months. What kind of mother was I? I sat helplessly, fumbling with the damped pill bottles, stumbling over my words, trying to explain what happened. In spite of my professional background in counseling, everything I knew about drug overdoses came from movies and medical dramas. Nothing prepared me for the reality of mental health care in 2020. I expected a young, scrub-faced medical intern to arrive on the scene and shout urgent commands at the nurses. I envisioned charcoal and induced vomiting, maybe, or a dramatic hypodermic needle shot straight through Svetlana's heart. But there was none of that. None of the medical personnel offered any comforting words. The social worker, when she arrived, asked only for the facts not the emotions behind them. Their hidden mouths questioned me and counted the pills almost mechanically while I felt their eyes regard me with blame. Even though my crisis job was harrowing, I had always extended compassion to my clients. The hospital staff's absence of empathy coupled with no attempt at connection sunk me further into my self-blame. I knew, even without researching on my phone, that mental health problems, especially depression, were among the most prevalent challenges facing people even before the pandemic, especially amongst our teens. In Svetlana's case, COVID-19 drove her despair even deeper underground. 
the lockdown and school closing were the least of it. She couldn't visit her counselor or her psychiatrist or attend any support group meetings. Isolation was both a symptom and manifestation of Svetlana's depression before the pandemic, but this plague cruelly exacerbated her loneliness, separating her even further from any sources of solace. Maybe the doctors and nurses had seen too much during the pandemic and their resources were simply tapped out. I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. Another nurse entered with an armful of blankets. We've got to put these on the bed rail, she said, just in case she has a seizure. She might hurt herself. When I jumped up to help, the nurse calmly said, Mom, you just sit down and wait with her, please. I despised the impotence flooding me, but I obeyed. Google informed me that overdosing on Prozac, the drug she consumed the most of, could lead to seizures, tachycardia, fever. The words scared me, but there was nothing I could do. Every couple of hours, a technician came to test Svetlana's heart. The drugs interrupted the intervals between the contractions of her heart muscle. Her heart rate escalated, 100 beats per minute, 105, 110, 115 beats per minute. I learned they'd bring in the crash cart if she hit 120. Out of it, but conscious, Svetlana wouldn't look at me or answer questions. Instead, like me, she stared at the monitor, mesmerized by the numbers and the staccato of her rapidly increasing heartbeat. Every so often, an alarm rang, startling me while Svetlana lay in silent resignation. The nurse punched the buttons, complained about the machine and said, false alarm again. The night passed slowly in disjointed chunks of time. The intermittent whoosh of the blood pressure cuff every 15 minutes reminded me to take a deep breath too. EKG, alarm, nurse, doctor. The boom, boom, boom of her racing heart. Alarm, nurse, EKG, doctor. Boom, 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 repeat. The room was blue, the color of depression. And I sat in the dim space beyond the drape, listening to the staff ordering tacos for Cinco de Mayo. My stomach clenched with worry. The dissonance between the carefree celebration outside and the grim drama inside our curtain cube felt as out of sync as Svetlana's heart. I didn't know what to do but sit and wait and watch and wonder why. Her words kept coming back to me. I was sad, Mom. How many times, I wondered, after our last trip to the ER, did I ask, if you're sad and want to hurt yourself, please come tell me, please. She always swore she would. A few times she did. Why didn't she this time? After Svetlana's first attempt, I recognized my own and society's aversion to saying the word suicide aloud. When I explained to our extended family what had occurred, I used the terms self-harm, attempt, or trying to hurt herself in lieu of the S word. No one acknowledged the uglier, drastic truth. Why? Are we frightened of contagion if we call out suicide? Are we scared to confront whatever demons live in the corners of our own minds? We need to get over our fear. And it's hard, even for me. My training taught me how to calculate risk, yet that first time with Svetlana, I still stumbled over discussing her thoughts and plans for self-harm. After that, 
I vowed to ask her the assessment questions blatantly and out loud whenever I was worried. Are you thinking about hurting yourself? If yes, have you made a plan? If yes, do you have access to anything needed to carry out your plan? If yes, we have to take that away and get you help. The fact that I didn't recognize or question her the second time made me hate myself all the more for not seeing it coming. My personal experience with depression and suicide gave me the impression I understood what Svetlana was going through. Back in the hospital in May, listening to the whoosh and the beeps, watching her chest rise and fall, I realized I didn't have a clue. For a 17-year-old, her story is complicated. We adopted Svetlana from Russia when she was 10, a happy, loving sprite who never let go first when I hugged her. Over the years, as the real details, the trauma and abuse of her early life revealed itself, so too did the depth of her depression. In spite of my brush with deep despondence and the job I once held helping others with it, I don't know how to protect my own daughter from her despair. And so it crushes me too. I carry more guilt than most moms, I think, because I came to motherhood sideways, not full on. The death of my own mother from cancer early in my life complicated my feelings about family and created ambivalence around motherhood I couldn't overcome until my late 40s, when my husband and I finally decided to adopt children. The kids we chose, Svetlana and her biological brother Andre, were 10 and 12 respectively when we adopted them from a Russian orphanage. They were exactly the older kids we were looking for but leaving a career I loved to dive into the deep end of the motherhood pool challenged me in many unexpected ways, exacerbating my already intense feelings of inadequacy. In the early months after the adoption, I contracted the adoptive parent version of postpartum depression, skyrocketing anxiety and clinical level despair. Once again, I sought help in the form of therapy and medication, a combination that served me well. I did the same thing for Svetlana even before any suicide attempts when her depression became obvious to me. The failure of the supports I found for her weighed heavily on me while I sat alone with my thoughts and waited through the hours in the hospital with Svetlana. As the machines marked time, nurses and technicians, impassive faces hidden behind their coverings, silently floated in and out. Their silence was excruciating. Pain leaked from my eyes in tears, soaking my mask as I rubbed the inside of my left wrist, tracing the pink heart over and over, stopping to make a dot and then a comma before continuing the pattern. All the rubbing in the world could never erase the heart tattoo Svetlana has already etched into my soul. My own mental illness, my time on the crisis line, Svetlana, my precious daughter, and my indelible tattoo. These things taught me that many of us, maybe even most of us, marinate overwhelmed in our misery when it comes for us. We soak sadness into our very spirits, terrified to name our sorrow and reach out for help. Since Svetlana's attempts, I've become determined to break our societal silence and erase the shame associated with mental illness. That's why I'm sharing my history and telling her story with her permission. I'm tired of alluding to it, of going into rooms to cry alone, 
when what I most want to do is scream, help, we need help. When people ask about my tattoo now, I speak these words aloud, depression, suicide, mental illness. Inside of these cold, difficult terms lies the real meaning of my tattoo. It is this, when you're dying inside, wait. When your feelings are sliding down, down, down the curve of your heart, pause. Stop until you can see the full outline of your humanity, the bad and the good. Take a breath and remember yourself with love. Draw it on the inside of your wrist over and over. Make it permanent if you have to, but look at it and be reminded to wait until you feel it again. Love. For almost 24 hours, I sat waiting with my daughter. When we left the hospital, her in an ambulance and me following behind, the sky was streaked golden with sunset. We drove through the waning light, both headed to the healing place where she will work on her recovery. And me? I will dare to tell the truth while I continue to search for a way to make hope and love permanent, like a tattoo within her. Thank you for speaking. You're welcome. It's so big to say these words. I feel like, yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. Feel mm -hmm. it. It's okay. It's okay to feel the scary yeah. stuff, I think. I know. I think showing people that you can feel it and survive it is the point, right? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> life is full of this crap excuse my language and, uh, <laughs> you can say use any language you want yes you okay. can yeah. so yeah yeah it was it was it's been a, a rough year yeah. I'll say it I know mm -hmm. I know and I mean one of many many things that I thought of while reading this and and listening to it are the layers that are involved and it just oh god like difficult times get more difficult when we have these other layers of, you know, the pandemic certainly has oh added gosh. that in so many ways to so many people. So that I'm sure, and you suggest or say she was feeling alone anyways. And then when you have to not do all the things that might help you to feel connections, mm -hmm. it doesn't it's help. Yeah. And I mean, just from, you know, visiting her in treatment and seeing what the other people that are around her go through, it is so glaringly apparent that first of all, there's, there is a problem. There has been a problem with increasing suicide and depression within our teen population, but this pandemic is just taking away all the things that made life at least bearable, you know, their friends, they're getting out of yeah. their houses and going to school, even if they didn't like homework and things, at least there was other people and, you know, supports in different ways. And, and yeah, it's just really been, I think, terrible for a lot of our kids. I mean, it's terrible for our, us adults too, but kids who were in a bad place before this are, are really struggling even more. Yes. Absolutely. How, mm -hmm. how is Svetlana doing now? She's in a treatment center. Yeah. Um, she's been in a treatment center. Um, 
she was in one after the first attempt and then she came home when COVID happened. And then that's when she made her second attempt and she's been in since then. She's been doing really well. We got her into a therapeutic school as well. So she's got as much support as one could possibly have um, academically and mentally. Um, Sort of the the sad um, news right now is that she turned 18 last December and last week she decided to leave treatment and go move in with somebody she met in treatment and um for whatever reason she's she does not want any help from me or her dad or her brother at this point and um so I'm just kind of (laughs) taking that in because it literally happened last week um and yeah but I mean she's safe in her own way, you know, she's made this decision. She's taking her medicine. She's going to therapy. And I can only hope that her time has taught her the, the right things to do when she's starting to feel herself go, you know, slide down that curve of her heart. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully she won't get to that spot again. Right. Well, Mm. that's, that's, uh, that's the next <laughs> yeah I mean that's the thing like we have we have wins and we have like she was in a center for uh, and to your point like Almost it's great year, she got that treatment but it's it's both the hardest thing and perhaps a good thing like as you were saying about teens they have to find their own way like this is their next this is the time when they're supposed to be branching out learning who they are meeting new people making their way in the world and I can't imagine how difficult it must be to trust and let go because that is a huge the absence of something is sometimes harder than actually doing something mm-hmm. yeah um, it just, it, it, again, it, it is interesting, you know, when I was coming on here, I knew you were going to ask how she was doing. And there was this part of me saying, I don't want it to say this, like, it's not a happy ending right now. No. <laughs> um, I mean, the happy ending is she's still alive. So that's yeah. good. Um, but I think it, it is just this ongoing thing and, and not just with us, I mean, with all these families. And I think the point is that I didn't want to say it, but that, that was the reason I wanted to read this because we need to say these things. We need to say people are in trouble, you know, and, and I have called, she's not in the same town that we live in. Um, Mm -hmm. The treatment center is away. And so I've been calling all the people I know there and just saying like, make sure you check on her and do this. Cause (laughs) you know, I'm still trying to play the puppet master my own, my own motherly way, but, but yeah. And, and, you know, as, as I mentioned in the piece, it's like, I became an adoptive mom when I was 49 years old. So (laughs) I I never felt like I really had this motherhood thing. (laughs) Well, that's true. I mean, you had, you have and had her for a much shorter time, you know, you Mm -hmm. adopted 
older kids, which I'm a little curious about mm-hmm. your decision about that. What what was behind that? Um, well, you can read my memoir. <laughs> I would love because, to. No, yes. Um, it's about um, when my mother passed away, my family kind of fell apart. Um, and so I was 23 when that happened. So I was old enough to take care of myself, but it certainly was, I came to the, you know, the cross in the road (laughs) and I had to figure out which way I was going to go on my own. And so I really just was, I never thought I would be a mom. And um, I just never thought that I would, my mom died when she was 46. I thought that was sort of going to be my destiny too. So it wasn't until I was 47, (laughs) I made it that I thought, Hmm, maybe I should think about that. And I knew even at 47, I'd never changed a diaper. I never babysat. I was the youngest in my family. I, I'm the last person that anyone would ever give their baby to, trust me. Um, <laughs> not because I'm mean, it's just like, I sort of, I hold right. a child and I'm like, what do I do? I don't right. know what to do with this thing. <laughs> and um, it was sort of funny when we were in the adoption process and they were matching us, you know, you fill out all this paperwork and then they start referring children to you. And the first children that they referred to us were two and a half and one and a half years old. And my immediate reaction, I didn't even censor myself when the social worker said, you know, they're this, they're this, they're one and a half and two and a half. I said, but I don't want babies. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) And the social worker, what she said was, but everyone wants babies. Right. right. And I said, well, not me. And so it was, it was interesting because I just felt very much an affinity for these older children who I don't know. I guess I, there was a part of me that thought I knew what it was like to lose a mother and then be nowhere in the, you know, have nothing in the world. And even though they were much younger and in a much worse place than I had ever been, it just felt like they were supposed to be my kids once I met them. I love that. I just love that. That's, I got chills when you said that. Seriously. I mean, Mm-hmm. And I love that you were so assertive in what you knew you wanted and, and sort of who you, who you thought would be the right children mm-hmm. for you in the time that you were looking for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that has been a really curious part of this whole adoption thing is when people would realize that they came to us and they were so much older, you know, so when suddenly I had to put them in school and I'm meeting all these moms and they're like, oh, your kids, you know, where, where are you from? And I'm like, I live right down the street. We've been here years. And, um, and no, they don't speak English because they just came from Russia. And, wow. and yeah, people were just, oh my goodness, they're so old, you know? And, but to me, it's like, I, I don't think I could have adopted a, ch- a baby. I just don't think I could have wow. done it. Wow. So. I love that. I mean, I just love that, that you knew mm-hmm. who you wanted. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. I was thinking about, I'm not sure how to get into this, but I was very curious to talk with you about suicide. And I was very um, honored that you were willing to share this story. And again, that Svetlana was willing to share this story. Mm -hmm. Um, because I've struggled with depression myself and have had a couple times when I felt like I can't take it anymore, but Mm -hmm. that was kind of where it stopped. I have felt very deep moments of despair and desperation and 
considered or threatened that I would, that I wanted to kill myself, even though I kind of didn't feel it. Like it was more an assertion of something that had to, that I had to express because I didn't know how else to say how much pain I felt to be in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Aside from that, I sort of learned of family history of suicide. Um, yeah, both on that. my dad's side of the family and on my mom's side of the family. And so it's something that has um, resonated with me or been present in my mind in various ways. And one suicide did happen in my memory when I was um, in college. So I went through the experience of my mom's brother killing himself. Mm-hmm. And then, and I also became aware later that generationally on my dad's side, there was a, a great grandfather who had killed himself and that my grandfather right. had been raised by a stepfather. So each one, you think that you have a commonality with this feeling of, I can't go on anymore. Mm-hmm. Yet, as you point out with sitting watching Svetlana each person is so alone in their own despair in that moment and where you said I realized I just didn't have a clue Mm -hmm. I think that's the one of the huge challenges that we all try to grapple with with this problem I don't know what else there is to say about that I mean Mm -hmm. well yeah I mean it's it's that incredibly incredibly vulnerable vulnerable moment moment of having having to reach out to someone someone and say say, I'm I'm thinking thinking about this this. and I learned on the crisis line you know you have to you have to ask questions and obviously people were calling and they would usually not start with I'm suicidal they would start with you know I'm really sad and or to ask all the symptoms, you know, oh, you're isolating, you're sleeping, you're not eating, whatever it they were. And as a counselor, you know, it was my job to say, are you thinking about hurting yourself? And if they said yes, then you had to say, do you have a plan for it? Because it's when people, I think the thought of doing it is very, very common. You know, we all have these moments in our lives when we're just like, this is so bad. I just don't want to go on whatever this is. But it's when you get past that into how could I do this? And if you start really making those plans, if the answer to that is yes, then it's like, well, do you have access to medication, to weapons, to all of that? And when they say yes to that question, then it's time to, you know, I'm going to call 911 or send somebody. When I was on the phone, that's what we had to do. We had to like keep them talking and try to get an intervention. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was part actually of, of my guilt with this second attempt is that our medication was just sitting on the kitchen counter because in my head, that wasn't a danger. Mm-hmm. You know, the first yeah. time she tried to drink herself to death basically. And so, you know, now in our house, everything's locked up. There's yeah. no cleaning fluids. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it's so important for people to know that progression. Cause yeah. I think asking the first question, I think so many people do think about suicide or wanting to get away from whatever problems they have. Mm-hmm. But I think 
making those next questions, because if you keep getting a yes to these other things, that's when you know someone's really going to take right. action. Right. Um, and so that's part of why I put those questions in the piece, because I'm like, I want people to know it's not the end of the world. If you ask the questions and you get the answers you don't want to hear the end of the world is if you don't ask. Right. And it yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the suicide crisis line was the other thing I was going to just mention. Cause that was another thing we discovered. I had told you about that. I had even forgotten yes. that I decided to train mm -hmm. to be on one of the Samaritan hotlines. I, now that I think about it, it had to be after my mom's brother killed himself. And I think I felt like mm -hmm. I want to be part of helping. I was not all that close to him, but it permeated me in ways that I never would have anticipated. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that deciding to try and get trained to do the volunteer Samaritan hotline was one of them. And I was very serious about it. And I went to all the trainings and I, it was, I think like a, 12 week program or something like yeah. that. It was significant. It's a serious training. Yeah, yeah. it's a serious You can't just training. answer the phone and <laughs> right. It's you know, not just like exactly. And I went through the whole thing. And then when I got to the end and they were like, okay, sign up for a shift. You can sit with someone first to listen. And I never went back. I was just and that's okay. I know. <laughs> It is okay, Michelle. But you know what? That's not unusual either. I yeah. mean, that I think that's why I'm still to this day amazed that they put me in charge of this. I know. Well, that was the other thing I did want to follow up about because that was another thing that in the hospital, that, I mean, how difficult to sit there and, you know, of course, have masks be uh, obfuscation to everything, to people's emotions on top of everything else going on. You don't have these people talking with you. Of course, you feel loaded with guilt over being there for the second time, because as you were sitting there and saying, when I was on the hotline, at least I tried to come up with empathy for my patients or and compassion patient for, for and the, right yeah the clients, the clients uh -huh. or yeah and right. that I think is probably why you got promoted <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yes. you know to show humanity <laughs> I don't know that was my theory mm -hmm. Betsy why <laughs> yeah I, I don't know but, what it was um but yeah, yeah I, I knew when I started going to cry alone it was <laughs> I wasn't really cut out for that yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intense it's very well, intense I think and, uh, to do a job like that well, I think with so many medical professionals, period, to do the job well and to have the empathy for the patients who you're working with takes an emotional toll on yourself. And it's a really fine line mm -hmm. between being able to be emotional and there for them and, all, and protecting yourself, too. So, yes, it's true. There's definitely that um, caregiver burnout that comes from being so empathetic and, yeah. and really feeling everyone's feelings and taking them on and, right, right. and then not having any place to go with it, right. you know, so, yeah. um, not having yeah. any left yeah. for yourself. So you were wise enough at mm -hmm. least to say, okay, that's it. <laughs> so your career after that, you continued on as a therapist or so it's kind of funny. So I worked a year in crisis where I said, you know, too stressful. Then I went into elder care because I had taken care of both of my parents when they passed. 
And so I did that for a year, a little over a year, actually. And then I decided, you know, everyone's dying. <laughs> that's pretty depressing. All of my clients in elder care died because that's what older people do uh, at the end of their lives. Um, And so then I actually went and got certified as a life coach. This was back in like 2000. So I think uh, there was a little part of me going, I want to be on Oprah one day, (laughs) you know, be a life coach and make everyone live their best life. And I did love that. I had my own business and practice, but I started volunteering for an organization that was getting started here in Chicago called Girls on the Run, which is an after-school program for eight to 12-year-old girls. And we train them to run a 5K along with teaching them life skills lessons. So I started the Chicago chapter of that organization. And I did that up until I adopted my kids. So I did that for about a dozen years and I loved it. I'm a runner like you, or I was a runner. I should (laughs) say I can't anymore. Um, But but yes, so we have that in common as well. But um, that was... I was able to sort of move my do-gooder personality into this prevention and helping girls grow up strong and confident and full of self-esteem. And I'm still on the board of that, but now I'm writing and staying home. That's awesome. That isn't it fun. Thank you. I, it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved that job and I, I loved everything about it. It's just, right. it's something because I can't run anymore because of physical situation now, I, yeah. it, it really bums me out, but yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Well, no, that's, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that sounds like a great program and you can hear your enthusiasm and passion for it. It's great that you're still working with yeah. it. And <laughs> And I can see now why you maybe also gravitated towards 10-year-olds, you know, for a Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You had spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. with girls. Yeah. I mean, it's really like my favorite age because, you know, they still kind of look up to adults and go, wow, you're kind of cool. Right. And then, you know, they become teenagers and they're not so much. Right. Yeah, I they don't think, think so much of you anymore, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but that's okay. But I no, yeah, it's, it's a great girl, age. And... Yeah. The nine-year-old girl is supposed to be like the ultimate of like selfhood before she starts stuffing it all down and exactly. deciding what's not right about it. But yeah, that's great. Thank you so, so much. Glad. Thank you so much for letting me do this. this oh my God. And scary letting and exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm so glad you said those two things together because fun and scary, they go together all the time. And that's why yeah. I am so grateful for, for you, for all of our writers who dare to do the scary thing. And we have fun with it. It's We do. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? bizarre and strange I don't know I just love it it's good when we can connect over something meaningful that is yes yes you know what it's so I mean this is kind of off the topic but I I was a runner for a long long time and at a point I decided to switch to triathlons and I remember wading into the water in my first triathlon and being terrified I would die Like I literally was like, I could die doing this. It never occurred to me like running, I might die running, but I could die. And I did it anyway, and it was fine. (laughs) But there was that little part of me going, you know what? It's kind of fun to do stuff that you're 
totally terrified of, you know, like showing yourself you can, you know, and and that's what this is about too. Like writing it is showing myself I can, saying it is showing us all we can, you know, it's just, it's really, so thank you for the opportunity for that. You are so welcome. Yes. Thank you. Betsy is just so great. I do keep checking in with her and hope, Svetlana, that you too can find your courage in yourself to just hold on, keep on breathing through those stormy, upsetting feelings and times. We all do experience them, even though we do in our own unique ways. Each storm eventually does pass. It reminds me of the George Harrison song, All Things Must Pass. That's what great art and music does for us. It, it sustains us through difficult times. So because I also have a connection with a friend and former colleague who really is a wise and passionate advocate on behalf of suicide prevention, Betsy and I continued our conversation with my friend David O'Leary, who also happens to be the morning guy at Magic 106.7 in Boston. I think there's an opportunity for people to have an honest conversation during this really, really challenging time about mental health. People who would in no way would ever talk about anxiety or depression or anything are now willing to go, you know, geez, yeah, there's kind of low-level anxiety everywhere. Is that going on in your house too? I've fed the conversation as a bonus episode, so you can grab that and listen to that. I hope that you will. Thanks again to Betsy Armstrong. I have put links to some of her projects in our show notes, so you can check those out there. And if you have questions or comments about our conversation today, you can email me, michelle at michellerado.com. I'm Michelle with two L's, and it's R-E-D-O. Thank you for sticking with us till the end, and thank you for daring to listen. Mm-hmm.